This is The Long Run Show with Austin P. Wilson and Michael J. O'Connor. The Long Run Show is brought to you by Benzinga Podcasts for listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of The Long Run Show. This is Austin Wilson. I'm here with my co-host... Michael O'Connor. And today we are going to be talking about energy, a very timely subject. Uh, at the, as we're recording this, there's the whole Russia-Ukraine conflict, war, invasion, aggression, whatever you want to label it, um, happening over, over in Europe. And obviously with Russia being one of the, the top uh, producers of natural gas and oil in the, the global economic system, um, we thought this would be a very timely um, subject. We've been wanting to talk about energy for a while, though, Mike. And and this is just kind of there's there's a lot going on. There's there's talks of sanctions being thrown around, and how is that going to impact you know European countries and the U.S. and and uh, Western Western countries? Um, so China's role in all of that as well. It's, there's a lot of a lot of moving parts here, and some interesting. Um, solutions as well maybe i mean we don't know all of those i'm sure but we'll we'll kind of just talk through that and and try to think through um what this means for you know oil stocks oil companies um and anything related to oil which is everything <laughs> so <laughs> that's true that's uh that's a good way to put it and and like, like you said we we've been talking about this for a while we've hinted at we've definitely run into energy discussions uh, especially in our ESG one, you know, the, the whole the green green energy thing and all that. There's a lot of, um, been a lot of different opinions and different kind of paths that different companies and especially national governments have taken. Um, we've seen countries in the last decade really abandon nuclear, which I don't know. I, I, I pretty severely disagree with because it's clean. It's enormous amount of energy. They're not necessarily reliant on other countries to supply the fuel. Maybe you don't have uranium mines, but um, you usually you can usually pretty dependably get uranium as a national government. So it's a that's a whole thing. I'm a big nuclear guy. I think I've heard that you are as well. So we might this would be maybe one where we're not really adversaries at all. We're just kind of <laughs> agreeing and uh, <laughs> kind of on our soapbox. But <laughs> well, hey, what's a podcast for if not a if not a soapbox, right? <laughs> exactly. No, but it's. But I, Oh, go sorry. <laughs> so it's it's been interesting though to to watch like okay we've we've seen different like energy has driven wars or it's driven you know the U.S. going into the Middle East and mulling around over there doing different things, um, and so it drives a lot of foreign policy. Uh, but also, I think the the less um, more understood commodity is gas, uh, as far as you know energy goes that's very very important for for heating homes and, and businesses and a lot of different things obviously oil touches everything um you know just about everything you touch during the day has something to do with oil because of plastic and parts and and all of that yeah literally everything i, I mean my my phone case here has got oil in it the the cord that's connecting my headphones to my laptop's got oil in it essentially so i mean the it's it's uh 
in in everything but natural gas is also a huge uh, factor as well especially you know if we're talking europe they get a lot of their natural gas like poland and germany get a lot of natural gas from from russia and what does this whole conflict do to those supplies uh, i mean it's the middle of winter so you're going to need to heat your home whether you're in southern europe or northern europe and natural gas is is uh, is one of those things not a lot of people with wood fire at least in Europe uh, that I know of, maybe maybe some more in in the Nordic countries uh, with their with their interesting some cozy uh, Heige, Heige. I forget how to pronounce it. Ugly or something like that. Yeah, I forget how to pronounce that. But a nice cozy wood burning furnace and yeah, exactly. So I I think of the two almost um, at this point as far as as energy goes. Um, natural gas is kind of like something that hasn't been explored as much. Um, now I know that doesn't drive as many economic outputs, right? But it is, it is definitely from the consumer, like direct, directly of consumer impact. Um, that is definitely a factor that I think hasn't been talked a lot. What are, what are your thoughts there on, on the natural gas end of things? That, that's an interesting point because we definitely live in a very oily world. We're very, <laughs> everything's, everything's all viscous and, and wonky, you know? Um, but <laughs> But that's a good point. I mean, in order to, you know, so many, I, I, I'm a big gas cooking guy. I like gas more than electric stovetop. I'm a big gas range fan. So, you know, I love my natural gas, Austin, I'll tell you what. And so <laughs> whether, to, whether to heat a house or to cook a steak, like that is such a huge, I mean, those are two very basic survival necessities. Heat, you got to stay warm to stay alive. You got to eat to stay alive. Now you could just eat refrigerated foods instead of cooking steaks but what's what's life without a good steak now here and again well maybe, but our, maybe our vegetarian listeners but but hey you could you could roast some nice broccoli or something with a, a nice but here's line. here's the thing even if you're roasting some nice broccoli or eating re refrigerated foods your refrigerator uses natural gas so that's a problem <laughs> yeah and, and, and it might be heating your home so exactly i i think it's one of those things where people Definitely focus on oil for good reason, but natural gas is is also a you know a somewhat of a a large resource that I don't think it's enough quite enough uh, coverage. And it's I mean it's winter in the northern hemisphere right now too. It's smack dab in the worst, my least favorite part of winter when it's Christmas is long gone. It's just cold and <laughs> snowy, and you just you freeze your nose and you're just sad and just waiting for spring. So this is kind of the worst time for no gas <laughs> exactly exactly this is about the worst time to have a cold house um so it'll be interesting to see what's what's done as far as sanctions i know i i mean this is a very evolving situation and and i'm sure by the the time you you might be listening to it it's going to be different um than what we know at the time but you know just a month ago in january nobody would have been thinking that there was going to be you know any impact on oil or or gas or or sanctions in that realm and even at the beginning of the the in, invasion um it, people were okay yeah, there's going to be sanctions but commodity markets are going to be unaffected we're not going to see you know sanctions on on oil or gas that's that's a bridge too far for europe but it looks like i mean the, the european union is is trying to support ukraine and however they can. And so it seems like that option's on the table and may, you know, by the time you listen to this, may be a thing. There might be sanctions out by that point. So what does that, you know, what does that do here in the U.S.? I think we're very 
far shielded from that. Eight percent of our of our oil imports actually come. We get a lot from Canada, like over half of our imports come from Canada and we produce enough oil to be self-sufficient. Now we still import and export oil for various reasons. Um, in the U.S., I don't think we'll be quite as quite as uh, hit by that as they will in Europe. Um, but your, what are your kind of thoughts on that as far as what, what's the what's the impact um, as we look at Europe having trouble with not being able to get enough natural gas or, or oil coming through their pipelines? Yeah, it'll be really interesting because we've, we've seen um, a few days ago, Germany stopped the, uh, the Nord Stream 2 uh, big pipeline. And, you know, it's interesting that the, the, I think the invasion was not what a lot of people are expecting, like you say, you know, expecting a lower impact on commodities markets, lower impact on economic situation worldwide, less impact right. on Russia. Because I think a lot of people thought it was going to be just a kind of a replay of 2014. They go in, they just make a lot of weird statements and like, oh, you know, we're just protecting our asset. Like, this is this is insane. I mean, they're using uh, munitions and rockets on civilian buildings and stuff. Like, it's, it's very, very different. This is a, a kind of a war of attrition style invasion. Yeah. Um, and which is just so sad to see and so scary to see. And I think the interesting thing is that it's, it's really galvanized the European union um, to say, Hey, you know what? We're not afraid to lose out on some natural gas. We're not afraid to lose out on oil. If it means having the safety of our citizens and of our neighboring countries. Um, so I think the, the interesting thing is, you know, it's probably going to hurt the sanctions and the actions that are taking place. I'm sure it's going to hurt pretty much every country in Europe's and every citizen's pocketbook. But I think it's the right call. And I think that, you know, in the long run, as, as we always talk about, um, I think that it will push more energy independence on both the constituents of the EU and the EU as a whole. I think the EU will yeah. probably be strengthened as a diplomatic entity. And they're going to have to say, OK, let's maybe let's figure out some sort of energy sharing program where member states are able to freely buy, sell, transmit energy. And maybe, I, I personally, I don't know if this already exists, but I would imagine if it doesn't, that this will probably happen where you'll see, um, I would imagine and, and hope that a bunch of nuclear uh, energy generation being built. Um, France uh, has, I think, the highest penetration, highest amount of their uh, energy is nuclear of any country in the world. And I'm sure they have the, you know, the companies, the technicians, the, the expertise to be able to rapidly scale that in, in the EU. So yeah, I think you could see um, a lot of collaborative action being taken, which I think is really interesting because at the end of the day, in the short term, it is going to jack prices up. It is going to hurt the pocketbooks of likely every European citizen. But what Putin's done is essentially galvanize all of Europe against him and against his imports and his products and um, really become a, a pariah that, you know, is at the end of the day, I think simply going to increase collaboration and cooperation, especially on energy, which was kind of this Trump card, <laughs> Trump, Putin, ironic, uh, Trump card that, that Putin was holding over Europe. And now it's like, well, all right, they're just going to take it. That's what it seems like. Yeah, it's it's interesting because and and we've spoken about this a, a little bit, um, how we're we're we have grown up in and the last 70 years has been some of the, the most peaceful 
uh, times in the entire world. And we've we've grown this interconnected global economy. And, and of course, that leads to typically more peace. Um, there's always people taking advantage of it, for sure. But there's there's typically more peace if, if everyone's relying on everyone else for resources and trade and imports and exports. But then you do winners and losers in all of this, right? I mean, you have smaller European countries that are just going to totally pay the price for being dependent on, on Russia and gas and oil in the short term. Now, hopefully, like you're saying, I, I, I really hope that the European countries can figure out a to kind of satisfy their need for energy in a in a more efficient manner, um, but my it, it's interesting because I, I think you know energy independence is probably a has been uh, up to this point. I think this is a great global example, but it has been kind of an underrated um, kind of national security uh, protection that most countries have not thought about before. Uh, but I think they're going to think about a lot harder in the future. And I, and I wonder what that does for, you know, this is not a political podcast, but I, I don't know what that does for relationships between countries uh, because economics obviously has played a huge role in, in the peace we've seen um, in the world over the last 70 years. And, and I don't think that is um, at all by mistake. I don't think that's at all by coincidence. That's, that's clearly been the case, but then, you know, you, you, okay. It's going to hurt European countries to then have this, this natural gas and oil. And also in the short term, Russia is creating its own rift with everyone else besides some countries, China, North Korea, uh, Iran, some of their allies um, and, and friends, I guess, national friends. But Russia is kind of creating this rift for itself over the long run. If we want to get back to a more peaceful world, how does it? look and and obviously this is not to to like try to uh, excuse what Russia is doing right now because it's absolutely abhorrent but what does that look like if we get past all this and hopefully no war like global war breaks out it look, look like bring a country back into the fold after you've gained energy independence right because Russia some people have said Russia is just a a, a gas station that happens to have a country connected I mean, they're, they're Saudi Arabia, they, they're very heavily dependent on oil. So, you know, what is what are the long term impacts of this from a both an inter economic standpoint and also, you know, a, a peace standpoint, just because, you know, the, the, those ties, those global ties and interdependencies really disincentivize pe countries, not people, uh, but countries and and their leaders, whether rational or not, to, to go to war, right? Um, they, if, if you need something from another country, you're probably not going to attack it. You're probably going to find a better way to get whatever you're trying to get from it. Um, and so I think energy independence is a good national security um, kind of strategy. But at the same point, how do you um, still or balance that with being somewhat dependent to be peaceful. It seems like to me, you can't count on everybody just being a good person, <laughs> clearly. So there has to be some incentive, usually monetary, to, to promote that peace. And, and here's the, the, the thing that has been blowing my mind is, imagine, you know, 60, 70 years ago, uh, right after World War II, Europe is rebuilding, Asia is rebuilding everything. 
who would have thought that Germany and Japan would be our two primary economic and diplomatic uh, allies in this kind of a situation and the buffers to yeah. Russia, which was the, the ally in World War II. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy how in the, which I think, I think that gives hope that, you know, in the long run over decades, whole countries can really be brought back into the global um, sphere. I mean, Germany is now a leader in European, the European union as a, uh, pretty much the diplomatic center of Europe, I would say. And Japan is a, an absolute economic powerhouse. Both countries have seen incredible um, regrowth and rebirth. And there's no reason why, you know, after all this, even in, in a worst case scenario, Russia wouldn't be able to come back. And I'm sure that the global community would be happy to receive it. Um, you know, barring some sort of truly horrific apocalyptic event, I think in the long run, countries really are uh, extremely resilient, similar to a, a person getting a cold or something, you know, they can knock you out for a few days. Uh, but I think that at the end of the day, the people of a, of a country will, will always attempt to, to come back towards uh, the community. I mean, the interesting thing in this situation is the, just the amount of relatives across so the Ukrainian uh, and Russian citizens are very close in terms of bloodlines and in terms of uh, mm -hmm. cultural heritage. It's, it's such an interesting situation to see. And it's sad to see uh, such close nations fighting um, so bitterly um, and such aggression from, from Russia. I mean, can you imagine if we, we just invaded Canada? Um, right. like, it's, it's, it's wild. It's wild to think about. Um, but I think it's also been a wake up call uh, for the world and that, you know, wars do happen and it's important to be vigilant uh and you know be focused on the long run and say okay just because things are good right now doesn't mean things can go crazy uh things mean things can't go crazy in you know a few days i mean think about even just a week or two weeks ago it seemed like it was all uh just you know talk on oh you know there's you know it's probably just kind of positioning um whatever you know and now it's it's real so i think it's a good reminder but in terms of Back in terms of energy, uh, I think, like you said, you know, going to going to um, looking at energy as a national security interest um, and not to, you know, not to go too much on the Ukrainian situation right now is is uh, is powerful. Being able to provide energy to your citizens uh, is crucial in this day and age with the amount of uh, infrastructure that relies on it. I mean, refrigerator. Washing machine, yeah. dryer, heating, like when you're talking natural gas, heating your, heating your house, cooking your food. Uh, that's about as basic of a national security interest as it can get almost. Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing when you put it that way, it, it, it's like, okay, well, pretty much all of the 21st century engines that we appreciate and love are, are washers or dishwasher, our, our refrigerator, our clothes drying and washing machines. I mean, those all rely on energy. And so if you, if you don't have that, <clears throat> you're really launching yourself back hundreds of years um, if you can't provide energy. So clearly a big a big issue. So let's dive into energy specifically because it's a broad term, right? It involves oil, natural gas, anything, otherwise known as turbines, turbines, sorry. Uh, the, the, you, can, you can tell I'm really big on turbines. Anyways, uh, wind... Solar might be a thing. 
nuclear, you mentioned earlier, you really like. Uh, there's coal, which pretty much everyone agrees is kind of one of the worst. Um, so there, there's hydro, hydroelectric uh, power. There's there's a lot of different ways to create energy. We don't have a lot of good ways to store energy. That's one of our biggest issues as a you know humanity uh, thing. We don't really have a good battery yet to necessarily store um, some some less reliable forms of energy. Um, but what as far as the landscape that I just laid out. Um, a lot of people break it down into like renewables and fossil fuels. That's the normal terminology. Is there a better way to approach that? Because I feel like, uh, I feel like that's not always helpful to just break it down and, oh, this is renewables and green, and these are fossil fuels and black and dirty and the worst. Um, it, it seems it must be a better way to, to look at this because from an innovation standpoint, usually you got to come at an ang- a problem from a different angle. Um, and and approach it in a in a new way, and so I like what you were saying about nuclear. I I for one have heard very convincing arguments on its on its benefits um, and on its long run capabilities. Obviously, you know we've seen stuff like Chernobyl and and what happened. I believe it was in Japan, um, or it might have been in China, with a the tsunami hit a hit a uh, large nuclear reactor. Okay, got it. So, you know, obviously we've seen those disasters, but it seems that the the way nuclear has evolved and the point that it's at now, I mean, this is a beautiful case study run more than 70% of their country's electric grid on nuclear energy. And they're they're in for the long haul. Clearly, they've, they've built up a lot of facilities for it. Um, and so not just nuclear, but hydro, hydroelectric power, that's another huge, a uh, huge um, resource that's untapped, especially here in the United States. I've seen a lot of, um, actually, I talked with a, a company that was making um, a, a process to allow fish to go past dams so that they could hydro, they could put hydro on more dams um, and basically not impact the, the natural environment around the dam. And have you know free flow of wildlife but also have electric power being produced there and you know kind of balancing both sides of it so what are your what are your kind of off the wall thoughts on energy like how do you how do you think about it differently because i i i don't really like being forced in those two boxes of okay green or fossil fuels that's the only two i think it's very unhelpful when it when we try and look at this problem i actually really i really appreciate that because i think that's pretty spot on because if you just if you're just categorizing um, all energy in terms of you know does it emit fossil fuels or not or does it emit does it use fossil fuels and emit uh, some sort of um, you know side effects into the environment uh, it, it's almost going back to our ESG episode of that's a certain methodology I think that it doesn't describe what's actually going on at a deeper level it's a methodology to kind of easily look at the broad scope of okay you know these these things and it kind of harkens to a to design thinking and um specifically called a one input system so like let's say your car on a good day when your car is not breaking down it's a one input system so you just input gasoline and it works as a system as at least in terms of your psychological perception of it sure you got you got washer fluid you got oil all those things but in terms of your psychological perception, it's a one input system, which makes it very easy for your brain to kind of 
categorize it very well. And when it's working well, you, you have to use very little um, psychological energy to kind of keep track of your car. Even better for like a, something like a Tesla or an electric car where it really pretty much is a single input system except for windshield washer fluid. I think it's the only fluid in a Tesla. Um, so in something like that, it's like a pretty much a true single input system where you put electricity in, maybe you got to worry about the washer fluid every three, four months or something like that, but it's really not that big of a deal. And I think that there's a tendency for both in terms of regulation on the governmental level, down to the consumer level to think, of uh, to try and categorize energy forms in a box and think of them as a single output system, almost like, okay, wind and solar. That doesn't that doesn't put anything out so that's good that's putting out like goodness into the environment that's that's a, a net good and then if you're like oh coal natural gas that's a net bad that's putting bad things into the environment and then if you see pictures of nuclear power plants you see whoa what's that all that like crazy smoke coming out? it's just water vapor it's literally just water vapor <laughs> which always blows my mind how many people still are like look at that crazy stuff coming out of the nuclear plant over there holy mackerel and you're um, like yeah look at the crazy stuff coming out of your bathroom door when you're taking a hot shower it's also called water vapor <laughs> but your your uh, your your other housemates don't worry about that cuz it's water vapor exactly yeah. Exactly. exactly, Steve. You can uh, you can, don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I don't know who Steve is, but maybe he's our scapegoat of the show. But oh, yeah. uh, anyway, <laughs> there, there's a human tendency to try and simplify these things into kind of single methodologies. And I think that the idea of the black and white of this is good for the environment, quote unquote, or bad for the environment, quote unquote, it's 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 you, at a ground level, you can't I mean, there's so much of a difference in nuance in really every single method because solar it's like okay you only have it half the time and that's if you're lucky if there's no clouds uh, all sorts of stuff so sure if you and they're expensive to build so sure if you can get them up you can get the sun going that's great wind is tough it's also intermittent so that whole battery problem is very very prevalent um and yeah with like coal is like yeah that's a lot of there's a lot of stuff coming out of there and there's more and more there are more and more companies coming out with new and innovative ways to um, capture or even turn some of those emissions into, into good things. But at the end of the day, it's still a process. But I think the part of the danger is saying that, okay, we need to just shut down all of that stuff. Like that's, that's, that's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm, I'm a big personal advocate for, for nuclear, because that's, that's nuclear is one of the few um, methods where it's okay. We have, we have both the, the thing needed. We have, tons of uranium we have the capability to use it immediately it take a, it takes a few years to build and, and get a uh, nuclear power plant operational yeah. but it's not like just, decades just of just a few years I mean, it's like right a decades of transitioning to wind and solar like you you could pretty realistically transition to like net zero energy production for most of the world if you used nuclear energy I and mean, it wouldn't be that difficult within a decade to 15 years, which is mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. To push, push back and also support your argument. So the, the, the output effect, I think people over, uh, I guess value or think about, they, they, they overemphasize. So out of, um, the, the plants and underemphasize the inputs going into some of the, for instance, solar panels 
or some of the impact that it like wind turbines have directly on bird populations and local environment. So there's clearly bad outputs for both fossil fuels and both solar and wind. There's obviously outputs that are negative and, and negative consequences from hydroelectric. I, like the company I mentioned earlier, there are some companies looking to solve those issues. I think what's really probably the best uh, best course of action, and there's also problems with nuclear too, right? Like what do we do with all of this uranium that we've used up that you can't really use anymore? And now it's radioactive and that's a problem for humans. Where do you store it? Is there enough space to take it out? Like mine it from the earth, use it, and then store it safely. Like the capability for that whole process. That's a whole kind of other question that we can get into. Um, but clearly every form of energy has some sort of negative output because we're humans and we're running around, running around doing stuff and we're bouncing and bashing into things and screwing things up. Okay, so energy, it's always a problem. There's always negative outputs. What I think makes the most sense is, and it's interesting because this conversation always gets very dogmatic and political very quickly. It's like, oh, yes, you're you're on the left side of the political spectrum. You line up with green energy. If you're on the right side, you just want fossil fuels. And then they just go after each other. What's what's What seems like the, the better angle to come at it from is, okay, we acknowledge that each has problems, some worse than others probably. What we probably should do is take what we have now, whatever that is, whatever's in place, and make it less harmful, and then continue to look for more innovation on the, the kind of uh, the, the solutions based around our current technology and reducing the harm of our current technology, while also building up completely new technology to harness energy from our, our natural environment, right? Um, and so whether whether that's you know making um, solar and wind more efficient, whether it's companies like the the one I spoke about earlier using using solutions for transporting fish across hydroelectric dams, great. Um, whether that's emissions companies creating solutions to capture some of the negatives of of uh, oil and natural gas and and coal, cleaning up the process while looking for better solutions, I think is probably the ultimate answer, but nobody ever wants to say that because that's a that's a bad soundbite. <laughs> that, that doesn't look good on TV. It doesn't look good on Twitter. Um, but that seems like the, the best way to go about it. And oddly enough, that seems like the, the way that would pay off the best. Um, because a company, an energy company, who's only focused on one, uh, one resource, one way of making energy is very, very risky. I mean, that's that's completely undiversified. So imagine if you had an energy company where you, yes, you're, you have some oil exposure, but you also have some nuclear exposure. And then, oh, by the way, you have a subsidiary that runs an emissions company that reduces the emissions from both your, your uh, oil and, and uh, natural gas section and, and the nuclear section. And oh, by the way, you have some windmills and solar panels to boot. It's tough too, because it is one of those subjects that will naturally create uh tension and and kind of there can be contention pretty easily on it so it's it's something where energy is a classic uh, especially in the last 40 even 50 years has been kind of a classic uh political debate when when i think you're right i think at the end of the day it doesn't necessarily have to be it can be a debate that is ensconced in moderatism um and it, it, 
is enabled to be, you know, both sides can understand where the other side is coming from. Um, I think that it's, it's exactly like you're saying, it just takes uh, cooler heads to prevail. Now that the, it's an interesting point with the energy companies being diversified, it is really expensive to, especially, I mean, especially nuclear is very, very expensive to get a nuclear plant up and running. Uh, I'm sure you're going to, you're going to make that money back over the course of decades and then some, but it is very capital heavy. And with all the subsidies that have been going on for wind and solar, there's been a lot of development there, but how long is that sustainable? And is that even a good thing that, that the government is offering subsidies? Maybe not, maybe better off subsidizing nuclear or geothermal or hydroelectric. Uh, Who knows? Yeah. There's some interesting, uh, there's some interesting talk and research and some inventions being done on the um, hydrogen side of, of trying to create like hydrogen fuel cells to power vehicles or like small meters. And so there's some, there's some interesting things that we didn't even mention, like geothermal, you mentioned that, that we, we, we haven't even talked about that being a, an option as well, but there's um, in fact, conversation with someone it, yesterday when we were talking about Iceland, they run most of their, their uh, infrastructure on geothermal. Cause I mean, it, basically just a one big volcano over there so they're lucky enough or lucky enough to live on a volcano we called lava land instead of iceland you know there you go well the the vikings didn't get that one right but it's okay uh we we won't hold it against them but uh it, it seems like there's there's a lot of options out there and i i i hear what you're saying about the um nuclear being expensive and obviously government subsidies planned all of that um but it would seem like, and, and maybe we should go consult for, for some of the big uh, oil oil boys, but it seems like if they wanted to, they should have the margin to go off and, and try and do a, a nuclear power plant. But I, I would imagine that, and like we were just talking, energy, for some reason, I, I, I really don't understand why, but it gets political, at least in the US, very quickly. And so... If uh, I, I I bet since oil has had a bad a bad rap for the last you know few decades here, um, if they went off and did nuclear, it would be the worst PR move. I'm sure their marketing department would just be bashing their faces into a desk, going, "No, why are you doing this?" Um, so it'd, ba- it'd probably be a bad PR move, which is why you see a lot of oil companies they're they're throwing money at wind and solar uh, because it looks good, but it might not actually be while for them or they might not even be using reports of of large oil companies just putting up a solar solar energy uh field and then they never connect it to anything they just leave it unplugged but it's just a pr stunt so <laughs> they don't care um <laughs> just spill a little oil in the golf and build a solar sell a couple of solar panels and it's all good um <laughs> anyways it it seems like maybe the maybe the the real um kind of brunt of the the energy question is look for more innovation and try to try to reduce the the tribalism or or political um political i guess influence or, or issues that arise in that sector i, I don't think you're ever going to reduce the the influence but uh, at least try to reduce the politics of it all because i mean when you when you get down to it we're we're talking about things that everyone needs which is why, again, it, it seems um, interesting that, that it gets so divisive so quickly because everybody, I don't care how rich or poor you are, you still need a, a warm house to sleep in. Um, and and that's that's something that we should all be able to, to 
behind. Um, so it seems like it, it it just needs to, like you said, cooler heads need to prevail. And and hopefully, you know, we can we can see some of this um, kind of coming to a head. I've I've seen like with uh, with Germany, we were talking about earlier um, and versus France, you know, Germany's gotten rid of all their nuclear has a lot of nuclear, like I said, 70% of their, their grid is from nuclear power. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, and I think on the international scale, uh, the the interesting thing is, is that France is such an interesting... I love that brought up France again with the nuclear because the, the one other big input that nuclear requires is vigilance, is human vigilance, which is not that easy to to have i mean it, it's it could i'm sure it tires out nuclear engineers to sit in the reactor room and you know, you're constantly watching dials maybe a change a little here and there but usually nothing's going to happen in them with 10 seconds where everything's everything matters it's you right know, about right. once in a career if that hopefully never in a career but maybe it does and so it's like that's a really that's such a unique uh requirement and maybe you know, there's definitely been attempts at fusion power becoming realistic, cold fusion, maybe as kind of the holy grail of energy. Um, so it's interesting at the international level. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens if Germany kind of changes course. I think they're going to have to change course in at least some direction, whether that's nuclear or otherwise, um, considering, you know, they're pretty much cutting off a lot from Russia so it's going to have to be some something's going to have to pick up the slack there. Yeah, and I think the the interesting question when it comes to that is does this kind of um, increase the the innovation that we see in the energy sector, or does this whole situation with just and I don't just mean Ukraine specifically, but does the the whole situation now where it seems that kind of the the ground is shifting partially because of what Russia is doing, but also partially because we've been in this trend towards green energy. And, and I say green, see, I, I'm using those, those terms again, but we've, we've been to, you know, shift towards whatever green energy is. It usually it's like solar and wind. Um, everybody's been trying to towards that. Does this accelerate the trend towards solar, wind and hydro, or does this decelerate that trend and then make everyone look differently at energy, um, which I, I think if the latter is done well, if that if that kind of reevaluation of what energy is, where we get it from, if that's done well, I think uh, that could be a positive thing. I, you know, I think probably solar and, and wind have a two. I'm not saying they don't, but um, it seems like this this is kind of a time for reevaluation. Obviously, there's a lot more than that we need to focus on is more important. I mean, we, we don't, I want, I don't want to minimize what's happening in Ukraine and use that. as just like, Oh, this is a energy game. I'm not trying to say that. Um, but, but once this is over and the situation is a little more stable, I think there's going to be a, a very big reckoning when it comes to the, the energy sector and how people look at it and, and move forward from here. Yeah. I think that's a good, a good point to bring up because the, the effects of everything that's going on will not be visible until, uh, until after, uh, you know, so we're not going to be able to really understand exactly what's what the short, mid and even long term effects are going to be. But, you know, speaking of the long run, you know, what do you think 
in terms of everything we've talked about, what do you think are some action steps? Because it's interesting in terms of investments. I, I do personally, I have some portfolio picks that I have um, and I've been looking at that are kind of long run energy plays. But I think even just in the, from the last the week, the last week of things that have going on, it might be rebalancing a bit. I don't know about you. Yeah. Oh, I mean, even the the even the big energy companies are rebalancing. I mean, BP's divesting from from uh, Russian holdings. So is so is Shell. Um, there's some some wild stuff happening. If you own those stocks, you're already kind of divesting from some of the the political conflict. But what's say is, I think, and and this is kind of my thesis going into it. Um, it's almost almost a you could phrase it as follow the money. So the money right now is in all the fossil fuels. That That's where it is right now. Now we may, and I use fossil fuels, meaning oil, gas, coal. That's where the money is right now. There is um, probably going to be a shift from that. It, it seems like no matter what, there's going to eventually be a shift. I don't think it's going to be a hundred percent or excuse me, zero percent, no fossil fuels at all. I don't think that's ever going to necessarily happen, but there's going to be a large shift. But that's where the money is now. I think if the companies um, that are that are have the capital at the moment, the large oil and gas producers, they have the capital. They're going to buy up the next energy companies coming up, just as a protection measure. And so I think at the moment, and this I may change my opinion on this going forward. You know, come back to it five years later, I may change my. But I think. Your, your long run play is probably better served by looking at some of the bigger names in energy and sticking to those rather than trying to choose, pick and choose um, smaller, smaller cap energy companies that say they're doing something in, in, interesting. Now, I think if you are looking at, let's, let's say you have a portfolio and you're like, you have a subset that's just dedicated to energy, it would it might be worth your while um, to kind of allocate a portion of that energy uh, section to picking some some kind of moonshots. But I think what's going to happen is as those companies mature, they're going to get gobbled up by some of the larger players that have the capital to do so. Um, I don't, for some reason, see the large players actually being the innovators early, but I see them buying up the innovators. Um, I think that's just probably going to be their strategy because they'll see it as either competent. Hopefully they'll keep the innovation going. Hopefully they won't just buy them up and shut them down. Um, and, and if we start to see that, then I might say, okay, well, I'm going to change my, my thesis on that. But for the moment, I think that's probably the, the better long run play rather than just trying to focus on, okay, what's, Who's the big nuclear player? Who's the big solar and wind player? Who's who's doing hydro? I need to find that company. Um, that's that's what I would be doing just to to kind of think through um, think through how 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 this is going to play out in this transition phase. And again, as we see with with everything happening politically and and internationally, um, it it seems like you know there's going to be a reckoning. Of, of energy somehow that, that comes out of all of this um, after the dust settles. So that would be my, my thought. Uh, but what are some of your thoughts on, on this? This is funny because you're going the, the riskier 
innovation centric small cap play and i'm the opposite <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm, well i'm no i'm i'm saying own the the large caps because they're gonna uh, buy okay. they're gonna okay. buy the innovators that, that's what i'm saying well i mean Just if you could if that wasn't clear i don't know how it would be crazy if you could get in on the small cap ones before they're bought out but how do you how do you know for sure that's that's the, the million dollar question but for me yeah i mean putting putting bones on it i just recently um took a position in general electric uh, I think that their decision to, to split, to break up uh, the conglomerate in the few years down the road is a great idea. Uh, the whole whole list of fundamentals behind that. But essentially, GE Energy will be its own uh, stock, as far as I understand, if, if the plan carries forward. And I mean, if you just look back at Standard Oil, you look at John D. Rockefeller, most of his massive fortune at its height was because of the stock value of the separate companies um, that, you know, over after Standard Oil was taken apart, all the companies still did very well and did better on their own because they were able to, a whole host of things. But I think that the GE breakup is actually really good uh, and will be good for GE because I think GE Energy might do exactly what you're saying is that once they're their own thing, they might got, grab some really innovative companies, integrate them and have kind of, a smaller, you know, they don't, they're not have beholding to the, the big general electric uh, methodology and shareholders. It's, they could be more agile. Uh, you know, maybe they're going to innovate um, on a host of different things. And I think GE is a great play because they, they manufacture so many durable goods that go into electrical generation uh, in the U S and across the world, whether it's wind turbines uh, or, you know, they've manufactured, I believe the, second most uh, nuclear reactors in the world. I pulled up, I Googled what companies build nuclear reactors and I did a, uh, they came up with a list and Rosastom, or um, that's probably not how to pronounce it, but in Russia has built 68 nuclear reactors. So a Russian company has built the most nuclear reactors, but second is uh, General Electric and Hitachi. So I'm guessing there was some sort of um, joint venture, but together they've built 64 nuclear reactors. Yeah. And third place is very far away with Kepco, which is a South Korean, um, but they built 20 themselves. So maybe Kepco is a good stock to grab too. Um, we'll see. But I personally uh, recently got a position in General Electric. Um, I think another energy play that I've been in for a while, I've mentioned several times, and at this point I've lost a lot of money on, but I'm still I'm still in for the long run is iTron. I think they have really good solutions for industrial electrical inputs and smart. Uh, the stock has not been doing good. So take it as you will. Maybe it's a buying opportunity now. Maybe you shouldn't buy it. Maybe you shouldn't take my advice, but I'm still long on iTron. Um, not necessarily planning on buying more anytime soon, but still long on it. Um, we'll see what happens with GE. Maybe I'll buy more of it before it actually uh, splits up because I think there's real opportunity there um, that is pretty uncommon. I think that the GE play could be a solid long run play, like a three to five decade play could you could make a lot of money on. But that's just speculation, not financial advice. Just like all this, not financial advice. But <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you have a good point in looking towards nuclear. I, I just think at this point we have to kind of uh, also my... I guess my reason for not looking to it quite yet is it hasn't seen mainstream U.S. adoption or like very good PR yet in the U.S. There's still a lot of people who think it's very unsafe and and just it doesn't have a good image. Um, 
So until it wins me, not me, but until it wins, wins kind of the hearts and minds of the, the American people <laughs> uh, until it, until it wins over, you know, one of the, the largest um, consumers of energy, I guess, China's China's there too, but I'm I'm not looking to them to to take on nuclear <laughs> anytime soon. Um, it, it, until it really kind of wins some more mainstream adoption, I personally think it's a little far off. But like you were saying, if you can get in at the right time and early enough, you can definitely see some some payoffs that are just impressive, ginormous. Some might say. Yeah, I think that's I think it's an opportunity for Alpha. Is what is what. Ah. It is. There we go, <laughs> which is a whole separate discussion because I don't know if it exists, but. Um, <laughs> oh, no, he's an official. No no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I just sent Mike off. I knew that would, would set you off. <laughs> so anyways, I, I think at this point we've, we've about uh, energized ourselves right out here today. But it's been a, a bit of pleasure talking with you, Mike, on, on this episode of The Long Road Show. And thank you again for listening. If you would uh, give us a, a review, that would be amazing. This has been another episode of The Long Run Show with your host, Austin Wilson. And Michael O'Connor. We'll catch you later. <laughs>